the Microsoft Exchange hack, how did the server exploit leak, and the father of zero trust on where we're going wrong. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Starting this week with the Microsoft Exchange hack debacle, Jeremy Kirk, ISMG's Managing Editor of Security and Technology, says there are strong signs that the server exploit code was leaked. The question is, by whom? How did a half dozen hacking groups exploit tens of thousands of Exchange servers in the days leading up to Microsoft's patches earlier this month? There are strong signs that the exploit data leaked, and the question now is, who leaked it? A Taiwanese computer security researcher who goes by the nickname Orange Sai indicated last week that the exploit code he developed and privately shared with Microsoft ended up in hostile hands. Microsoft is now investigating whether one of its partners leaked the data, although it maintains it is not the source. Knowing who leaked the exploit information is important because it may provide insight into how a little-known vulnerability was suddenly spun into mass, indiscriminate attacks against Exchange servers in late February. Microsoft provides information on exploits and attacks ahead of time to a group of vetted partners that are part of the Microsoft Active Protections Program, or MAP. The idea is that giving advanced information allows those companies to fine-tune their defenses in their own products ahead of a patch release. The Wall Street Journal reported that for the exchange flaws, Microsoft shared information with MAP on February 23rd. A fierce flurry of worldwide attacks ensued not long afterwards. Between February 26th and March 3rd, 68,000 distinct IP addresses were compromised, according to the Shadow Server Foundation. Microsoft patched on March 2nd. But a leak in Microsoft's map is just one theory. One security firm, Velexity, saw some isolated exchange attacks on January 3rd. That was two days before Orangesai and his company, which is called DevCore, shared the information with Microsoft. That makes it impossible that either Microsoft or a map partner could have leaked it. DevCore maintains that it is investigated, but determined it didn't leak the data either. If DevCore indeed was not compromised, the findings from Velexity suggest that perhaps someone else had already found the bugs and was using them in a low-key way. There's a chance we'll never know who leaked it. Although Microsoft's map partners in China are likely in the spotlight now, the information could have leaked through a map partner that doesn't know it has been compromised by attackers. It's an unsatisfactory prospect that this mystery may not be solved, but it may direct questions back to Microsoft as to whether the map is still worth it. A leak occurred through the map in 2012, and Microsoft kicked the offending partner out of the program. After that incident, Microsoft defended the benefits of map, but acknowledged the risks. As sleepless incident responders around the world continue their work to secure systems, that justification may no longer hold. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Following on from our first story, I caught up with our executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, on how ransomware is taking advantage of the Microsoft breach. So how bad will the damage be? Very good to see you, Matt. So we just heard our colleague Jeremy Kirk, of course, report on the Microsoft Exchange exploit leak. And we're going to tackle the story from another angle, that being on March 2nd, Microsoft issued emergency patches for four zero-day flaws. And 
As if security and IT teams didn't have enough on their plates, since then, ransomware has begun targeting one of those flaws. So what's the risk? Great question, Anna. So it's fascinating, as Jeremy was talking about, to see these flaws get found and with an unusual timeline. We don't know how exactly attackers came to possess this knowledge. But since March 2nd and Microsoft putting out the security patches for these four flaws in exchange, we've seen a number of additional attackers enter the fray. One of them being the DeerCry ransomware operation. So although it sounds like WannaCry, thankfully, DeerCry is quite a bit different. It's not a worm, for example, so it can't spread itself between machines. And according to a teardown that was published recently by Sophos, apparently this is really unsophisticated code. It handles encryption in a way that might allow at least some files to be recovered which is great news for victims. And in short, it looks like it was rushed to market by a gang that said, ooh, here is a flaw in exchange servers. There's at least half a million of them that haven't been patched. Let's see if we can take advantage of this for a payday. We often focus on ransomware and, and recent supply chain attacks, such as the nuclear bomb that was SolarWinds. But from a criminal perspective, which crimes do you think are most lucrative? Well, ransomware has been a tidy little earner, as we've seen, especially over the last year. But in the broader scheme of things, fraud, scams, business email compromise continues to be the really big earner, at least in aggregate. The FBI just released its annual internet crime report, and it notes that in terms of the total criminal profits generated, BEC, business email compromise attacks, reached $1.7 billion, or an average of about $92,000 per incident that was reported to the FBI in 2020. So 1.7 billion, huge. For comparison's sake, we're looking at maybe 54 million in reported phishing scam losses. And tech support fraud, you know, when somebody from Microsoft calls you up and says, install this or install that, that generated more than $146 million. So this is all just reports to the FBI. The actual amount is probably far higher. For example, $29 million in ransomware payoffs were reported in 2020. The actual number is going to be you know, much higher than that, but it's still orders of magnitude less than what we're seeing with business email compromise attacks. So your age old sorts of fraud and scams remain alive, well, and really profitable for criminals, unfortunately. Yes, and it's astonishing to see that, that criminals keep posting bigger profits. In your opinion, is law enforcement doing enough to help blunt the feasibility of the cybercrime business model? It's challenging when you look at ransomware, for example, the amount of ransoms that are Bitcoin only or cryptocurrency only. It's really difficult, I think, for law enforcement to follow the money in those cases. I think there needs to be kudos for a lot of the operations they've done have given them increased visibility. So a lot of times they're keeping track of the wallets that money flows through. And even if they can't tie those wallets to an individual, in a later investigation, when they bust like a darknet market or something, and they maybe find additional information that allows them to tie an actual person's identity to a wallet that was being used, they might gain months or years down the road, the ability to identify and arrest somebody. So this is a long process, but the FBI is 
renowned for keeping his eye on the ball, even if it takes a while. So that's ransomware. In other kinds of crime cases, we're seeing some nice improvements or advances on getting stolen funds back. Now, the key here is to report fraud as quickly as possible. Immediately is what the FBI requests. For example, if you think that your organization has sent a wire transfer to fraudsters. So in this FBI report that's just come out, they include a few case studies of where the Bureau was able to get back some or all of the funds that were wire transferred to scammers, in some cases domestically, and in at least one case over to Hong Kong. Apparently, the organization, which isn't named, but based in St. Louis, contacted the FBI right away. And the FBI contacted its legal attache in Hong Kong, who liaised with police, and they were actually able to stop the wire transfer before it flowed into the attacker-controlled account. So they got that money back. They got $60 million back that they had wired to Hong Kong. So the FBI has the unfortunately named recovery asset team, i.e. RAT, that they've been using to help get these funds back. And they've got some really nice case studies. In terms of the incidents that were reported to it, they've been able to get back more than 80% of the funds. So the imperative here is not only to tell law enforcement, but to tell them as quickly as possible, because they have been getting mechanisms in place to help victims. Matt, I always feel much better informed after speaking with you. So thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Always great to chat with you. And finally, John Kindervag, aka the creator of the Zero Trust Strategy, met recently with our Senior Vice President of Editorial, Tom Field, to discuss the state of Zero Trust in 2021. That's 11 years after the term was first coined. So how does he think we're doing? Well, there's too many people who are talking about it who have never done it. I would argue that Zero Trust at the tactical level is experiential. You know, there's just so many misunderstandings about it. We're going to try to clear those up. And then you have a lot of people who are trying to position so that their product works well. So you have various pseudo standards bodies talking about it. Look, this is something that you have to look at completely differently than the way you've always done things. And so you can't take the way you've always done things and just tag it zero trust and think it's going to work. It's not. So I'm focused on what are we going to protect? How do we secure it so that not only bad actors can't come in, but most importantly, important stuff can't go out. And that's what the entire industry is missing. We're so focused on what's coming in that we let a lot of bad stuff out of our environment. And that's really what I'm focused on is preventing data breaches. Breaches when stuff leaves our environment, right? Not when they get in. That's the old way of thinking about it. The way it's been redefined by legal and regulatory entities like GDPR, CCPA is when data that is regulated or sensitive is exfiltrated from your environments, that's when the breach occurs. And that's when CEOs get fired. So that's what I'm trying to do. Stop data breaches. Zero Trust does that. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.